great crowd here today. Those of you that are watching by Facebook and on the internet, we're so glad to have you with us. Appreciate that very, very much. And happy Father's Day to those of you who are fathers out there. Welcome. Thank you, brother. It's an exciting day, June the 21st. I was telling the first service, not only is it Father's Day, it's my birthday, it's the summer equinox, and somebody else said it's, uh, I don't know, something about the lunar eclipse or something. (laughs) What an exciting time to be alive, right? All right, well, we're blessed to have you all with us today. Um, I have a gift for all of our men. Ladies, if you don't have some man with you today, our significant other, you might want to give this away. Uh, This is a book done by Pat Morley or Patrick Morley a lot of years ago, 30 years ago now. Um, Been uh, redone several times. This is the 25th anniversary. It's called The Man in the Mirror. Uh, if you don't have a copy of this, please take one there on the back in the, in the table back there as you go out. Those of you that are watching uh, online uh, will be glad to get these to you. You can either stop by and pick them up here at the church or we'll mail them to you. Uh, great, great read. Some of you might remember when we were doing our men's study some years ago, we read through this book. And it's just very, very good, very challenging, talking about the issues that men face. And so um, make sure you pick up one of those. Okay, I don't get any royalties for this. I don't get any money from it for my birthday. So anyway, don't uh, think I'm trying to sell you something. So it's free. How about that? Free. All right. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord's blessings on our time together. Lord, we thank you for the joy of what this day is all about. It's the day we've come to worship you. And we just thank you so much for this privilege. Thank you, Lord, for your saving grace. Thank you for what we just sang, the amazing, amazing grace that you've bestowed upon us. And, boy, we're going to understand that even more fully today as we look into your word. Very challenging subject, very, very challenging. And so uh, we thank you and we praise you for your intercession. We thank you for your mercy in our lives, that we can be made right with you in the midst of our sin and our sinfulness. And so open our ears, Lord, that we might hear spiritually. Help us to apply what we hear. Give us a hungering, as Jesus preached, and a thirsting for righteousness. Lord, may we never be satisfied with what we learn from you and what we hear as we just want more and more and more. And so uh, we ask your blessings on this time, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, I'm taking us back to Matthew chapter 5, even though this is Father's Day. I think you're going to find, men, if you listen carefully, you're going to understand and see some things, be reminded of some things uh, that will help you as a father. Okay? Uh, again, a very challenging subject. Now, Jesus has been dealing with some subjects. I'll uh, reiterate that in just a minute as we do a little bit of a review. Uh, but what we want to do today is I, I have decided to break this uh, subject into a set of messages. So we're going to call this a mini-series, if you will, on the subject of marriage and divorce. Okay? Not, a, not a, a message that people like to hear today. In fact, what's happening in our culture in a lot of ways is uh, people are just not getting married. Uh, more, more and more people are living together. It just doesn't seem to be an issue. But God has much to say about marriage and also this subject of divorce, of which we'll read from our text in just a minute. So don't get too comfortable. I'm going to have you stand as we read his text. But just understand, over the next couple messages, uh, we are going to do this as a little mini-series. Now, next Sunday, I'm excited. Brother Samuel Ndungu is going to be preaching from us. You know, Samuel and Grace and the boys have been with us for a while. Debbie and I have to be out of town. And so he's going to be preaching. Hasn't done that for quite a few years. Brother Samuel is just a dear brother. And uh, and then uh, we'll be back again the following week. We'll be here, but uh, either Brother Scott or Brother William Washington, I'm hoping, 
is going to be with us from the bridge ministry. Okay, So uh, two weeks in between when we'll actually be having this second set. So sorry to do that to you. It's just the timing. But it is interesting to me how God's providence works in the way that he does because of this subject falling on Father's Day. So let's listen carefully. So if you would, if you can, if you're able, stand in honor of God's word as we read from chapter 5 in this next section on the Sermon on the Mount, beginning in verse 31. This is Jesus speaking and preaching in his message. It was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. All right, you may be seated. Challenging, challenging words from the Lord here. Very personal, very personal for many of you. What's Jesus doing? You remember that he is, throughout all of this sermon, he's setting the bar of holiness very high. He's taking the people that he's preaching to and us as we're listening to his words back to where it should have been all along and pointing out the spiritual deficiency, if you will, in the minds of those who were leading the Hebrew people. And as Jesus is now has now entered into his ministry, he is bringing to them subjects that they have struggled with and subjects that they have dumbed down, if you will, uh, brought spiritually lower uh, to their own liking. And so Jesus, again, is raising the bar back to the way it should be. And all of that comes as a result of what Hosea said in chapter 4, verse 9, like the people, like priests. Now, what do you mean by that? He meant as the people go, and this works in the reverse as well, as the people go in their thinking and their spiritual lives, so will over time the priest the teachers, the Bible leaders go the same way if they're not careful and paying careful attention. We don't want to do that, but that's exactly what had happened in Jesus' day. The people had adopted certain things that the priests and the leaders, the Pharisees, had begun to develop from the word of the Lord, and all of it had become a real mess. Now, to address some of those faulty understandings, Jesus talks about the first one as an issue of the heart being murder. Now, those of us, as we studied that some weeks ago, would say, well, I never committed murder from anyone or against anyone. That's not an issue. But Jesus raised the bar by saying, yeah, but here's the thing. Murder is really a manifestation of anger, which is a manifestation of what's going on in the heart. And so always Jesus is picking on the heart and pointing to the heart. And so he dealt with that. And then he dealt with the subject of adultery, where people would say, oh, remember it was against the law in the Old Testament to commit adultery. We'll see that again here in just a few minutes. And But the leaders were saying, oh, it's listen, as long as you don't do anything outwardly, it's okay. But Jesus, again, raising the bar, says, okay, let's put the bar where it's supposed to be. If you even lust after someone, you've committed adultery. Very, very challenging subject. Now, for today, what we want to look at is this, again, this subject of marriage and divorce. Now, to start the message, though, to start this series, I just want to focus on what God says about marriage, okay? Just what God says about marriage. So his view of marriage. Now, to do that, we need to go back to the foundation of what the Lord has taught before we can understand how God feels about divorce and how he is going to teach us in other passages and other messages about the subject of divorce. And so there are several beliefs, just to start with, about what God has said about marriage. Uh, 
some have said that marriage is never, ever to be broken. Ever. No issues should ever be considered viable enough to allow divorce. That's some people's view. No divorce ever for any reason. Okay? That's group number one, if you want to write it down that way. Some have said divorce is allowed, but never remarriage, ever. Once you're divorced, you should never remarry, ever, no matter what the circumstances were. There's a third group, though, that have said that, well, pretty much you can divorce anytime you want to. You can marry anytime you want to. You can get married as many times as you want to. You can divorce as many times as you want to. There's really no conditions on it whatsoever. And then there are those that would say that God hates divorce but allows it under certain circumstances, under very specific circumstances. And that's the fourth group. Now, what we want to do is what we always do is to look into the word of the Lord and really determine from what God says, not what people think or what their suspicion is or what they expect it to be, but what God actually says about the word of the truth and settle our hearts there. Okay. So to do that, let's go back to Genesis chapter 2 where we have the beginning record of what God intended for marriage to be and what he intended it to look like. So let's go to chapter 2, Genesis chapter 2. I want to pick up in verses 1 through 3, and then we're going to jump down to verse 15. And we'll look at a lot of scripture today. Uh, and so if you can't keep up, that's okay. No big deal. Just It's better to pay attention if, than it is to get lost in trying to find the reference. So Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. By the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. And then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because he had rested from all his work, which he had done to create and to make. Now jump down to verse 15. And then God, the Lord God, took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. So what we have in Genesis is we have kind of a summary um, beginning an abstract, if you will, in the first chapter and the second chapter. And then we have some clarification as we begin chapters 3 and beyond. So now as we jump into the verse 15, we have, even though man and woman are already created, Moses goes back and clarifies this even more. So God takes man, puts him in the Garden of Eden to keep it and cultivate it. And he commanded the man, saying, From any other tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it you will surely die." And the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that's what its name was. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not one found a helper suitable for for him. And so here's Adam living in this beautiful place, but there's not one like him. And so we have in verse 21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked 
and were not ashamed. Now, if you're listening carefully in those verses, you hear from the latter two verses, verses 23 and 24, what we begin to understand as marriage and how God himself views it. If you notice verse 23, notice God says, the woman was made from the man. Okay? This is basic Bible teaching, basic understanding, but it's good for us to review this. Woman was made from the man. Adam says, wow, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. In other words, no more powerful description of this beautifully created creature than right here and this uniqueness of this creature, woman, than what we have here. God has now made a man and a woman who are very, very equal. In fact, there are no other created beings like this, these two in the garden. And so when God says she was taken out of, that phrase in Hebrew really means that she was created from him. Okay, we get that. But it also means that she was made from his makeup. Okay, getting the idea of this oneness. In other words, she is human. She is a being created just like he is. And because of that uniqueness, if you look again in verse 24, the two unique created beings now are to be joined together in one flesh. The word joined there means to, it gives the meaning that this was a permanent and an everlasting union. That was the idea in God's mind. In other words, just simplify by saying nothing was to break this apart. That's God's plan we put it in our context for the message today, divorce was not to be a consideration. That was not to be a consideration. Now, to be clear about all of this, God goes on to say that the two shall be one flesh. Now, some have interpreted that to mean that from these two people will come children. They'll come flesh from them. Babies will be born. That's fleshly. And so that's what God means. And that certainly is true, but there really is so much more to it than that. This is, in God's mind, a union of both flesh, truly, and of spirit. And that's the part that we really need to think about. And John MacArthur has done a marvelous job, as he always does. He always hits a home run out of the park every time he steps up to the pulpit. And he wrote this about this subject in one of his commentaries. He said, there is no termination to that. He's talking about this joining of the two, both spiritually and fleshly. There is no ending to that. They continue to be that one flesh. He says, notice the words cleave unto, and if you have a King James Version, that's what you're going to read, but this is New American Standards, so it's the same idea. He shall cleave unto his wife or be joined unto his wife. These are very important words because they reveal the nature of the marriage bond the way God intended it to be. And the term has the idea of being glued to something. A man and a woman become stuck, as it were. Not in the sense that you say, I'm stuck with her, but in the sense that God has stuck you together. You're glued. When two people are glued together, they become one single individual. And so it says, they shall be one flesh. And surely that refers to the sexual union, but much more. He unites a man and a woman in a unique and profound biological and spiritual bond that reaches to the very depths of their soul. And so marriage as God designed it to be is to be the perfect welding of two people together into one. They're not just two anymore, they're one. And one is an indivisible number. They are one. It is a commitment of two wills. It is the blending of two minds. 
It is the mutual expression of two sets of God-given emotions so that the two become one and the goal is a perfect oneness, both in the intimacy of the physical and the intimacy of the spiritual and the sharing of those things in life that cannot be shared and are not shared with any other human being. God created sex and God created procreation to be the fullness of the expression of that oneness. And so the physical reproduction is the outplay, if you will, or the exhibit of the oneness of the spirit of these two individuals. And so in this oneness, the Lord is very clear that the two people take on the other person. That's basically what happens. They're no longer one. They take on the other person. And by the way, for all they are, for everything that they are as a person and all that they are not, everything that the person is not is taken on. One of the things that I love to do with people in counseling is to have them stand. And if you've been in counseling with me, marital counseling, premarital counseling, you'll know that I typically do this, don't always do this, but a lot of times I'll have people stand in front of each other, the couple, and I'll have them face each other and they see each other as coming together as one. But then I have them look beyond each other, kind of glancing over the other one's shoulder. And I give them this image of look at all of the events and all of the people and all the situations that are behind you that you're bringing into this relationship. You're not going to just leave those things just because you're two people in love with each other and thinking that this is going to be marital bliss forever and ever. Amen. But you're bringing everything in life with you. And so this is the idea that all of the events, all the circumstances, all the people come into that relationship and the other person is to accept those responsibilities in those relationships because the couple is becoming one person. So when God created marriage, he intended for them to be one person in flesh and in spirit, in their consideration of one another. They are to look at each other as one. There is to be no division in thought or mind or will. There is to be no desire to be better or separate from the other one. There is to be a oneness. And marriage became the defining picture of what that oneness is to be. Someone asked me just recently what marriage really is or how, where is the marriage begun And really marriage has begun where we see in Genesis here. It is the declaration of God's intent. It is the willingness to stand before others and say, not just because of the ceremony or because of all that's been bought and purchased in the celebration, but the marriage is the willingness of the heart standing before others and saying, God has said that marriage is to be between a man and a woman as one person. And we are declaring God's truth to you. That's when the marriage begins at that particular point in God's mind and in in God's eyes. And so that's what he considered marriage. No desire to be better than another. And to break that union, to dissolve the union that God has instituted would be like ripping apart a body. It would be the same thing as taking a body part and throwing it away. It'd be like taking a left arm or a right arm and saying, I don't need this anymore. Let me just throw it away because it is no longer useful to me. Or taking some other part of your body, your leg, your eye, whatever it would be, an ear, and saying, it's just not necessary for me. In a spiritual sense, probably the greatest thing that you can think of would be, it'd be like ripping apart the Trinity. 
There's a oneness that's shared between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that cannot compare to any other kind of oneness as we understand it. And so can you imagine just for a minute if God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were somehow ripped apart from their oneness? I mean, that's inconceivable, right? That's just not going to happen. And so marriage then even becomes a picture not only of Christ and the church, as Paul will say in Ephesians, but it's the union, the oneness of even the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in that picture of uh, togetherness. And that's exactly why the Lord said what he did to the Pharisees when they were testing him. If you go to Matthew chapter 19, follow it on the screen if you like. Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse 3, uh, Jesus again is being tested by those who thought they understood better than he did. Notice what they ask him. They said, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? There's the question. And Jesus answers and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. What's Jesus saying? Again, he's raising the bar. He's bringing them out of what they thought was okay. We'll talk about that in a minute to where God says it should be and should have been all along. Here's the standard in all of these subjects. The standard is far higher than you want to make it to be. This is not just another subject to live with. This is the sacredness of holy matrimony. It is just that. It's holy. It is sacred. It is to be revered. It is set apart or sanctified by God himself. Why? Because God created it. It was because of God that all of this took place. And so God is saying, it should never, because I did this, and I purposed this, it should never, ever be dissolved. In fact, it is so sacred, and so holy, so sanctified, so revered, that God instituted a very severe, the most severe penalty on any person who broke the marriage bond. If you go to Leviticus chapter 20, in the laws of God to Moses, for the Hebrew people, God writes this, if there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Shall be put to death. Now listen, there's no stiffer penalty than taking somebody's life, right? I mean, when the life is gone, there's nothing else that you can do to the person. And so God has instituted, according to the law of Moses, way back in the beginning of the creation of the nation of Israel for humankind to understand that there is no greater penalty for a crime than for someone to have to give and surrender their life for their sin. And God says, that's how serious I take this breaking of the marriage bond. And the Lord taught that in this sermon in chapter 5. If we go back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, as we read earlier, and we're reviewing, you've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. Okay? It's a crime against the partners. It's a crime against the oneness in the picture of marriage. But I say to you that everyone who even looks lustfully 
has committed adultery with a woman in his heart. And that can go either way, man. You can also be guilty of the same thing. Ladies, you can be guilty of the same kind of thing. So if we were to just bring this down to its basic line, God is saying, don't even think about, don't even think about lusting after another person. It was a defilement for any person to do that. But it was worse even to covet a man's wife. And the subjects of sexual sin and defilement were clear in the Old Testament and other writings as well. Did you know that God was concerned about how people were dressed when they came into the offering time or when they came to worship the Lord and bring their offering that if if they exposed too much of their flesh, God wouldn't accept their offering? This is how serious God is about this whole area of sexual sin. In Exodus 20, verse 26, he says, You shall not go up by steps to my altar so that your nakedness will not be exposed on it. Now, what's the point? Well, if you understand the context, and I'll just tell you what it is, it's all about worship. And in the pagan worship symbols, altars were often elevated very high by steps. And so the pagan priests would walk up these steps, and often they would have no undergarments on underneath them, or they might even be in worse conditions than that. And so God says, no steps on my altars. I don't want anybody to be tempted to look at the fleshliness of somebody else and the literal flesh of someone when it comes to me and to worshiping me. In other words, I don't want anybody to see bare skin when it comes to the folk, when you're supposed to be focused on me and who I am. That, we'll learn, is reserved between a man and a woman in the sanctity and the privacy of matrimony. And again, the pagan temples were filled with even prostitutes who believed that it was a way to reach the gods, to bless the fertility of the land if they committed acts of sex there on the altar, as gross as that may sound. This is how uh, depraved the world had become in those days, that in an act of worship to their pagan god, they believed that this was okay. And God didn't want his people to be a part of any of that because it was too holy to come and worship the Lord and be uncovered. In fact, he even required the priests to be fully covered. When you go to Exodus 28, beginning in verse 40, notice God writes through Moses, for Aaron's sons, and you know Aaron was the first high priest and his sons followed, shall you make tunics, you shall also make sashes for them, and you shall make caps for them. They have to go onto their head for the glory and for beauty. You shall put them on Aaron your brother and on his sons with him, and you shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. Now watch this in verse 42, though. You shall make for them linen breeches or undergarments to cover their bare flesh. They shall reach from the loins even to the thighs. They shall be on Aaron and his sons when they enter the tent of meeting or when they approach the altar to minister in the holy place so that they do not incur guilt and die. It shall be a statute forever to him and to his descendants after him. Listen, the issue is about covering the flesh as man approaches God. That was God's prescription. But this also fits how easy it is to violate God's holiness with nakedness which is often what is caused when people, which is the cause of what happens when people begin to lust after other people in the first place. It is that fleshliness, that visual stimulation that often comes that causes people 
to lust after others in the very beginning of a bad and wrong relationship. In fact, God didn't even want polygamy. We've often asked that question. Why were there so many people that had multiple wives? Well, God didn't institute that. That was also a result of sin. In Leviticus 18.18, you shall not marry a woman in addition to her sister as a rival while she is alive to uncover her nakedness. Again, let's keep reiterating the point. The point is, God is so serious about marriage remaining between a man and a woman. He clearly says, nakedness leads to adulterous affairs. Nakedness leads to adulterous affairs, so don't expose yourself, cover yourself, or else you will put tempting thoughts into the minds and the hearts of other people, which is going to lead to sexual sin. That is just the natural course of events as they are played out. In fact, I would ask you the question, do you know, and there may be some, but very, very few in this world, do you know of marriages or marriage violations where they weren't centered first around sex in some way? That's typically the case. And we could all, I'm sure, agree to that. And you may be sitting here saying, yeah, but um, that's not the case with me. Well, praise the Lord, okay? But we're looking at something that is quite the norm in a lot of cases. And there may be some out there that, get divorced and married and marry someone else without sex being involved. But again, that's certainly not the norm. In fact, the first thing that God did with Adam and Eve was to cover their nakedness. You remember that? Back when they sinned in chapter 3, because sexual sins come from such sight and arousal of the flesh, God covered them which often, again, leads to broken relationships. There's a guy who wrote a song many years ago. He was a Christian in those days, contemporary singer. That definition would have changed today, probably. His name was Steve Green, uh, not Keith Green. Some of you are more familiar with him. But Steve Green wrote a song called Guard Your Heart. And the first lines go like this. What appears to be a harmless glance can turn to romance and homes are divided. Feelings that should have never been awakened within. You hear that? Tearing the heart in two, listen, I beg of you, guard your heart, guard your heart. The issues of brokenness in marriage and these other subjects that Jesus is dealing with all originate from hearts that are not paying attention and are captivated in wrong ways. And then the marriage is broken. And so God writes in his word very, very clearly defined parameters for a marriage, which is to be between a man and a woman, Get that in Genesis chapter 2. And beloved, listen, these are not my words. I'm just telling you what the Lord says. It is to be monogamous, it is to be lifelong, and it is to be permanent. And by the way, there's no place in the Bible where God commands for divorce to occur, which is what was causing the confusion for the people in Jesus' day. So let's get back to that now and see the point of what Jesus is saying to them. It was confusing because the people of Jesus' day, the leaders, had made divorce very, very easy. Now, I'm not going to go through all of what happened in those days, but basically, a man could divorce a woman for any reason whatsoever. If she burned the breakfast, she could be put away. If she didn't make his peanut butter sandwich right, she could be put away. I mean, it was just absolutely ridiculous. And it became so common It became so normal for divorce to occur that they had to ask Jesus about it. And so in Matthew chapter 19, that's what they had, what what we have. So if you go back to, uh, let's look at, in fact, at Mark's gospel because he covers this as well. Mark chapter 10, 
beginning in verse 2, some Pharisees came up to Jesus testing him and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. Well, why would they ask that question? Again, because it become so common. And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? They said Moses permitted, and they were right about that, a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. But Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And he just reiterates what we just read in Genesis. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Now listen, like sinful people do, leaders reduce the message of God's law into what they want it to be instead of what was right. And that's something that we always have to pay attention to. We can never assume what God is saying, but we go back to the text to find out what God is really saying. We ask the question, why did they reduce God's commandments of marriage so much? Why did they do that? Well, let's just state the obvious. Because it's hard to be married, right? It is challenging to be married. It is a difficult thing. It's not easy. It starts well. At least hopefully it starts well. If it doesn't start well, you probably should stop right there. That's not a good place to go if it's not starting well. But usually it starts well and the two people are excited and they want to live life together. They have no plans of coming together on their married day to say, oh, you know what, in a couple months we'll just break it off. They don't have any plans of that. This is a death to us part kind of thing in most of the in the minds of most people. But after a while, they find out there's some problems, and the problems are they're both sinners. And the bigger problem is they start competing for how big a sinner they can be, and it just gets worse from there. I mean, you think with me for a second. People are very demanding, right? People love to be demanding. They're very controlling. People are very selfish in what they want. They want it their way and they want it when they want it. And by the way, I know that's not any of you in this room right here today. Yes, it is. You can laugh at that. But we expect from others. We want from others. We have this idea that if I'm with you, you'll make my life everything that I want it to be. In fact, a lot of people come for marriage and they think I'm taking on this person because I need them. I got to have them. I mean, they're going to compliment me and make me everything that I hope to be and, and they'll give me what I want. Well, they may not be saying that, but in a lot of ways, our marriages are very selfish. And they're, we're selfish because we're sinners. We want this other person to be everything that I think they should be. In fact, most of the mistakes people make when they get married is thinking just that that this person is going to be my everything, meaning they're going to get out of it what they want. One of the greatest pieces of advice that I ever heard, I was telling the early service this this morning, and I'm dating myself as today is my birthday. Um, Some of you can correct me on this, but do you remember the old Jimmy Stewart movie, Shenandoah? Anybody remember that? long time ago. I don't really remember the whole story of it, but I do remember one particular scene, and this was years ago I saw this, and I just thought it was just an amazing insight into it. Well, the story is that Jimmy Stewart finds this young lady, and he wants to marry her, and he wants to do the right thing, so he goes to the father of this young girl to ask about marrying her, and the father has two questions for him. 
The one is, do you love my daughter? Oh, yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir. Love your daughter, love your daughter, blah, 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 blah. Love your daughter. And you can see that in Jimmy Stewart kind of way. The second one is, but do you like my daughter? I thought, wow, what a profound question. Do you know how many people fall in love with love, but they don't fall in love with the person in the right way? They don't really like the person that they're falling in love with, but they can't tolerate being away from them because they're having such a feeling of love? What a great, great question. Well, here's the problem. When two people who are sinners at the heart get together, there comes a point in life where they don't like each other a lot of times. They just don't like each other. And so what happens? Well, what happens is what we're talking about here is that they break it off. It just comes to a place where it's just not going to work anymore. And we call it quits. The issue is, though, God never gave that permission in the beginning. God never gave anybody that permission. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Moses gave to you permission to divorce, never a command. It was a concession. It was a concession for the hardness of the hearts of people, for their stubborn hearts. That's why Moses gave it, because the people were so persistent in their sin. Moses went to God, and God says, All right, Moses, give them this concession. There are certain conditions in which divorce is allowable. And the biggest reason why is because people contend for the role of leadership in the home. I mean, that really is what it comes down to. We break our marriages because we constantly fight over who's in charge and who has the best ideas about the way life should be. And when we don't get our way, we don't know how to work it out very well, and so we just say the best thing we can do is say irreconcilable differences, and so we part, right? I mean, that's the culture. Now, let me explain just a little bit more fully this idea of taking over the leadership spot biblically, where this comes from. Because you're going to see we're all guilty of this. Nobody's immune from this. In every marriage, you have these two unique people, we've already defined all of that, who both want this leadership role, which came from original sin. So let's go back to the context in Genesis chapter 3. Man and woman now have both sinned, So God pronounces curses on them. Not just a curse, but curses. Listen to what some of those are. First, the woman will now have pain in childbirth. As I said to the early service, I bet you ladies are excited about that, right? No longer was this going to be evidently pain-free, I am assuming, but now you're going to have pain in childbirth, and that certainly is true. Curse number one. Secondly, the man will have to work for his food. Good job, guys. Now, every man, and that now is women involved in that, go out every Monday morning and hunt for their food, whether behind a desk or driving a truck or whatever it might be. We have to do that. But there's another curse on both of them. Look with me in verse 16. After God says, I'll greatly multiply your pain in childbirth, in pain you will bring forth forth children, yet your desire, speaking to the woman, Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. There's two more curses, one for the woman, one for the man, right there. Let's explain that. The two were, before all of this, beautifully compatible. Let's just see a before and after. 
beautifully compatible in who they were. Both had their roles in their relationship. They submitted to one another perfectly because there was no sin. Man, who was created first, was given the headship role of the home. Very clearly was the woman given to the helper position. That was not, by the way, a dominating kind of thing. That's what comes from sin. But woman was given to be man's perfect companion. Remember, there was no other created being like her or like him. And so she was there to help him in all ways, to be a co-laborer in life. This mutual expression of the beauty of God's oneness in that garden. But sin destroyed all of that. This is the distinction and the horrific work of sin, beloved. Sin destroys, that's what it does. And sin destroyed their relationship where man was once loving and kind and gracious to his wife, to this beautiful creation that God had made. And the woman was submissive willfully. She understood her role as a helper. That God had created this, co-laboring, as I said, with God, ruling together, totally devoted to one another in perfect Harmony, if you can even imagine that, which you can't because we're products of sin now. We weren't there then. It all ended then when sin entered into the picture. And so notice God says to the man, he was given the rule over her. Listen, that's not a blessing. That's a curse. That's part of the curse. No longer is this relationship a mutual growing together, harmonious relationship, but now, man, you are cursed in this sense that you are going to rule over her because she's going to try to rule over you. She's going to try to rule over you. Now, this word rule means to reign. It is an elevated position. This is the word, and God chooses his words very carefully in his text. It is a position of elevation or an office. So the fall elevated man to a position over the woman. The curse did that. Again, before all of that, there was a much softer rule. There was an understanding between the two of them. And I just want to reiterate this so you get it in your heads. There was a softer kind of dominance. There was that distinction, but it was a loving, caring approach by Adam. But now he is cursed with dominance. This fight, this taking back of what was usurped from him. And the woman's curse is to be placed in subservience or in submission to the man. And it all started, all of that is what started the chauvinistic fallout, the liberation movement, as man and woman would go throughout history and continually battle back and forth for who has dominance in this life. You're not going to take over me. You're not going to tell me what to do. I'm in charge. No, I'm in charge. And there's constant fighting and bantering back and forth to the point where they finally said, you know what? I'm done with this. It's over. I'll see you later, buddy. And divorce occurs. So you ask yourself the question, well, why did God do this? Why did God do this? Well, let's remember the foundational truth of all sin, and that is God didn't do it. God reacted in his own divine way, in full knowledge of what he was doing, to man's rebellion against God. It was man who rebelled against God, and man is accountable under the curse. And we see that very clearly. Secondly, the woman sinned, not the man. Paul makes that very clear in his epistle. 
So God, and I'm not letting man off the hook. Okay, I hope you see that. But there is a positional effect here that created a lot of this problem. So God, because she decided to step outside of the boundaries of what God had created her to be, God says, okay, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to put you perpetually in a place of submission to man. That's what I'm going to do for you, Eve. And he is going to be your head. And you're going to fight that the rest of your life. And that sin will pass on through every person that comes from your bodies. And here we are. The same fight going on perpetually. Now listen, without Christ, who becomes our gracious intercessor and our mediator, the home becomes a place of unequal dominance, constantly battling back and forth whether with kind words or vicious words or even physical altercation, there comes this suppression by the man over woman and the woman's desire to rise up above him, which is what we'll see again in verse 16. Without Christ, there is no submission to one another. In Christ, the beauty of marriage is that the Lord brings both people back to the same playing field and back to the way he intended the relationship to be in the beginning. But without Christ, there is no help. There is no mutual consideration for one another. There is only fighting and destruction over that relationship. And then that male chauvinistic attitude takes over and the woman's liberation says, no, I'm going to take over and then it all goes downhill from there. And to make matters worse, let's get to the second part of the curse for the woman, is that her desire is going to continually be to take the rulership from him. This is what we see in verse 16. Your desire will be for your husband. Now some people have said, yeah, well what that means is she is going to desire her husband physically. As if God is giving her some warm fuzzy there. You're going to have physical attraction to your husband. Well, that's true, but that's not what the Lord is meaning here. And how do we know that? Because, interestingly, this word, desire, is only used in one other place in Scripture. And it's one chapter over in Genesis chapter 4. So go to that, and let me show you this. And you'll get the clarity of what God is meaning from this word in chapter 3 about her desire being for her husband. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 3 through 7, let's read the whole context here because it's about their children, Cain and Abel. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought forth an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And so both boys are bringing their offering. And the Lord had regard for Abel and and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. In other words, Cain's heart was wrong in this issue. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. And then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Interesting question. And why has your countenance fallen? Hey, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? In other words, do what's right, Cain, and you'll feel better. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Now here's the word. And its sin's desire is for you but you must master it. That's the same word as in Genesis 3, verse 16. Sin will desire to master you, Cain, but you must master it. Here's the point. 
In the same way God was saying the woman will be mastered by sin, the sin of ruling over her husband. She will desire to usurp his role everywhere she can. It is ingrained in the curse. It's there. She cannot get rid of it. And the purpose will be to control him. And man's going to have to suppress it. That's going to be his curse. You have to live with it. That's why Solomon would write, to live with a woman that's constantly nagging is like the drip, drip, drip of a faucet. And we have statements like that throughout Scripture. Listen, you want to know why, husband and wife, you contend for each other's rights is because of the curse. You, man, feel the inwardly what God has given to you as to be the dominant one in the relationship. And woman, you feel the curse where God says, no, you're going to try to usurp over man's authority every time. And that's why we have, as I was saying in the early service this morning, honey, I want to put the couch over here. Well, I don't like it over there. I want this car. I don't like that car. I want that house. I don't like that house. Why aren't you doing this? I told you to do that. I didn't want to do that. Well, how about this? Okay, fine. And we just have the never-ending battle. It all came from the curse. And it was because Adam let her lead him to this sin. She's the one who received from the serpent what God told her not to. He had to deal with this fight. Men, how many times have you said to your friends, I can't do anything with my wife. She fights me on everything. It doesn't matter what I say or do. She has an opposite opinion. And it becomes a joke among the boys. And the wife goes back to her friends and she says, I don't know what's wrong with my husband. It's clear to me. Why shouldn't this work out? He just won't do anything I tell him. Well, here you know why. She wants to knock him off the throne. He wants to knock her off the throne. And there's this never-ending battle for the mountain. And that's why marriage is so difficult. You have two people contending for the title of leadership, which in many cases, sadly, ends in divorce. And so Jesus said, God gave divorce as a concession. As a concession. Because of your hard hearts. Your hearts. Not his. Your hearts. Because in the beginning, that's not the way it was. That's not the way it was. It didn't change his view of marriage. And Jesus is preaching that on the mountain. You want to know what God's view of marriage is? Don't divorce. God hates it. Don't do it. He hates it, he hates it, he hates it. But that's where we are. Divorce is now normal, even in our culture. Many of you have been a part of that. And uh, we'll get to the good news Right now, we want to make sure we're seeing the purpose of marriage, the view of marriage in God's eyes. But listen, when things become normal, people don't see things very well anymore, right? Think with me now. As normal becomes normal, sin becomes much fuzzier, which is what happened a long time ago. The religious leaders said, hey, just get rid of your wife, man. Just get rid of it. Moses said it's all right. I mean, you know, Moses, he said it's okay. I mean, if Moses says it, it must be okay, right? So just get rid of your wife. It's no big deal. That's normal. Well, 
Today, marriage has become less of an issue even. It's sad state. You know, people are just not even getting married. I think they're probably just missing the whole problem in their minds by saying, well, we just won't get married. Then it's not an issue. And that's become normal. But before we close here, let me just reiterate something here. Can I show you just one last thing about how God hates divorce? In Malachi chapter 2, here's the context. God is scolding his people, specifically the leaders, because of their sin, uh, sin that they didn't even see anymore. And you'll see this in the text because it becomes so normal. In Malachi 2.13, God's saying to them through the prophet Malachi, here's, here's another thing you do. So, I mean, he's just kind of raking them over the coals, the Lord is, his people. Here's another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with your tears. In other words, you come up to the altar, you weep, and you pour your heart out with groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. You say, for for what reason? In other words, they come and do what they believe is the prescribed thing to do to worship, and the Lord's saying, I'm not going to accept your worship. They're like, why not? What's wrong? I mean... Did you see my tears? Did you see my heart? I'm pouring my heart out to you. What's the issue here? And so God says, look at verse 14. Well, here's why. Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, skip down to verse 15b, Take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your your youth. Basically, Malachi is saying, here's why the Lord doesn't listen to you anymore because you're a bunch of hypocrites in your home. You come and you pour out your heart before me as if everything's fine and I'm looking inside your house and I'm seeing how you're treating your wife. And that's not the way marriage is to be. I'm not going to accept it. I'm not going to accept your worship. Take it back. Notice in verse 16 of Malachi. For I hate divorce, says the Lord. You've just thrown out your wives and said divorce is okay. And him who covers his garments with wrong, says of the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. In other words, clean up your act. Go back to what I intended in the beginning. I gave to you this precious creature so that you would deal with her rightly. And by the way, ladies, we understand now God gave to you that precious man for you to deal rightly with him. God hates divorce. That's what Malachi says here. So clean up your act. If you want me to bless you, love your wives. If you want me to bless you, men, Love your wives. Ladies, love your husbands. Don't divorce. I hate it. I guess the illustration simply could be, brothers, even sisters, we could come into the service every week. And this really is Jesus' point throughout this whole sermon. You can do everything wonderfully good on the outside and people think everything is great. But inwardly, your heart is very broken. Inwardly, you're not hiding anything from me, God would say. I know it all. And I'm not going to accept your worship if you treat your spouse like that. But notice this in verse 15. One little sentence here is so profound. One little sentence. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. Listen to that. Not one 
has dealt treacherously with their spouse who has the spirit in them. You know what he's saying? He says, my people don't live like that. The people who love me with their heart, mind, and soul, who, let's go back in our minds, hunger and thirst for righteousness, learn how to work it out. They know their place. They know their role. They see the problem. They see the king on the mountain issue and they understand that it's their sin, the curse that's saying to them, you keep suppressing, you keep fighting and they see all of that and they say, that's not of the Lord. We're going to live like the Lord wants us to live. Honey, I'm going to love you even when it's hard to love me. I'm going to do for you even when it's hard to do for me. And the mutual, and the, and it becomes reciprocal. And so you might be asking this morning, as we close this, Pastor, this is very convicting. Well, it should be, because that's what the Word of the Lord does for us. But you might be asking, so what about my divorce? Is my divorce sin? What does God think of that? How's God looking at me right now? Well. We'll tackle that next time. We don't have time to do that this morning. We'll get to that. But just so you don't lose sleep until then, just know this, that God does recognize divorce under certain conditions, certain parameters, and we'll get to those. Okay? There are times that when God allows something, God also gives permission for something else to occur. And again, we'll discuss that at length the next time. For now, what we're trying to do is listen to what the Lord is saying. Number one, about the subject of marriage and how he views it. That's what we want, right? We don't ever want to say to God, well, this is how I view it, so this is what you should do, Lord. We submit to him. He's the Lord. And we say, God, we need your help to make us live according to how you want us to live. We understand that the bar of holiness is up here. And because the bar is so high up here, we see our sins so clearly. And we come to the place where we say, thank you, Father, for saying, sending to us your Son, who became our intercessor. Because we cannot reach between ourselves and you without someone like Christ. And so this morning, if you hear this message and you struggle with what the Lord is saying here, and even you're struggling with the clarity of it all, be encouraged because not one of us is innocent before the Lord in some way, right? And the joy of this life is knowing that we have a Savior who came to pay the debt of our sin, all of our sin. All of our sin. You hear that? All of our sin. Not categorically. All of it. He came to save us. He has become our intercessor. Father, forgive them. They've put their trust in me. They've put their hope in me. I've paid the debt for them. Their sin is forgiven. They're clean. They've been washed as white as snow. And the Father will say to those of us, Come then and enjoy my kingdom. Even in the midst of a life where we have sinned greatly against the Father. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, who could write a story like that? 
No man. No man could write a beautiful story like that where we see the desperation of our sin and the wickedness of our sin and a God who will forgive us in the midst of our sin. Only our Father could do such a thing. Makes it pretty easy to understand why we want to worship Him, doesn't it? It's like we're saying, Lord, you know all my backstory. I mean, you know the decisions I've made. You know the hurt that's been there. You know what I've done. You know what people have done to me, and yet you're still willing to forgive and give me a place in your kingdom? And the Lord says, absolutely. Absolutely. Because of what my son did for you. He's worthy of our worship, is he not? He's worthy of our worship. So let's pray, and let's ask God to forgive us for where we are in our lives and remind us of where he wants us to be and help us to be the people that he wants us to be. So again, hold on to your thoughts. We'll get to them, and we'll do our best to answer them from the word of the Lord. Okay, Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the precious truth that you, hear to, hear, that you give to us. And Lord, it is not easy. It is not easy to hear your word. And I can only imagine if we were there on that day with those people on the mountain, what it must have been like to hear these very stinging and very stunning words. As no doubt many of them had been wrongly taught that divorce was okay for anything. And Lord, how you exposed all of that. Expose it in our hearts, Lord. Even those of us that have never been divorced Lord, expose to us other sins that may be keeping us from being what you want us to be. And Lord, may we glory forever in the truth that you brought your son, you sent your son, you sent your son to be the propitiation for our sin, the appeasement of your wrath, the substitute for our death, just like Leviticus brought out, the one who sins in adultery must die. Lord, thank you that you paid the death penalty with your life that we might live freely. We love you, Lord, and we honor you and we worship you with our hearts and with our minds and with our mouths. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let everyone stand again, please. Come thou found.